now as we open up your word and learn a little bit more about you and a little bit more about us, we pray that you would lead us and guide us, Holy Spirit. Uh, we know that you're present. Uh, we just want to say it. We just want to say you are welcome here to do whatever it is that you would like to do in our hearts and our minds today through the power of your word. We give you all praise in your name. Amen. You can have a seat. When's the last time that you felt awe? Like really, when's the last time that, that it just felt like you, you, you were in a position or you saw something where your jaw just dropped? Like, wow. Uh, it's been fun the last couple of weeks having uh, my friend Cosmos here and uh, his first time in the U.S. and just these moments that we've had where, uh, where he, he just says once in a while, wow, wow. We were at. Uh, we went up and visited our friend Bernie. Drives the big monster trucks at Falkirk uh, this past week, and just us getting to go up and stand close to those trucks and the tires being, you know, twice our height. Which that's big. I, they're big. That's what I'm saying. I mean, you might look at me and go, "That's you know." But wow, we're awestruck. It, it takes a lot nowadays, I think, for us to live in wonder, for us to actually be wowed by something. To become uh, awestruck. I remember um, my my dad's just utter disappointment the first time that he ever took myself, my sister, our family out to California, and we and we showed up, uh, and he drove us to the beach there of uh, on the Pacific Ocean. And uh, about three or four times prior to that, we've always gone to Florida, so we saw the Atlantic Ocean. And now he's like, now I'm taking you to California. And so you can imagine this poor guy, he saved up, you know, for his family to go on a vacation. And we piled in the car and he drives 24 hours and 1,500 miles. And we get to the ocean and, and he's like, let's go see it, kids. And like I, as a dad, and especially as somebody who I love experiences and I love to watch people in their first time experiences and to go, oh, I, I got to provide that. And so we get out and we look at the ocean and and uh, my dad goes, well, guys, what do you think? And he said, I don't even remember how old I was, but he, he said that I turned around and I said, it looks just like the other one. <laughs> right? It takes a lot for us uh, to, to be wowed nowadays. We live with the internet at our fingertips, answers to everything. Right? We're, we're no, we no longer wonder because we can know it. Uh, immediately and almost everybody does know everything immediately in today's text we're going to look at a continuation that was kind of this three healing moments that Jesus healed somebody's life and we're going to look at the last two but but even as we look at this today many of us who have grown up maybe in the church have already have heard these narratives many times as kids in Sunday school and then growing up and hearing them taught in youth group and Bible studies as adults and preached on in sermons and so when we read about Jesus healing people of their diseases we just go yeah that's just what Jesus does so today, uh, my prayer has been, if anything, through this, that we'd learn a little bit more about, about God through His Word, but, but maybe today that we could just be awed by our Savior and who He is and what it is that He's done for us. So Matthew chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 5 today, and if you would, let's stand together as I, 
uh, read this. So Jesus says, remember if you were here last week, had healed uh, a man with uh, leprosy. Uh, and it says then that he entered into Capernaum. That was where he made his home base. As we've been preaching through Matthew, uh, it's right there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And he went back into Capernaum after preaching this incredible sermon that he had. Uh, on his way, he meets this leper and he heals him. Then he goes into his, into his town of Capernaum. And a centurion came forward to him and appealed to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed. And he's at home and he's suffering terribly. And he said to him, I'll come and I will heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you even come under my roof. But only say the word and I know my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes. I say to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant I say, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I ever found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. To the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. When Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. She rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with a word. And he healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and he bore our diseases. This is God's word. It's a beautiful thing. You can have a seat. Let's just unpack this just a, a, a little bit today. I, really what I want to do today is just give some observations of this text for us to understand it just a little bit more. First of all, what we have is a pretty remarkable situation. And it's remarkable to me as I take a look at it because of the response of the centurion. You see, a centurion is a, he's really kind of a, a, a leader in the Roman army. He oversees a hundred soldiers. So he's got some authority. He's got some presence. The reason that he's actually present and in Capernaum is because at the time of Jesus' day is that Israel was under Roman rule. So the Roman government was in charge over this nation. They allowed the Jewish people to continue to live the way that they were living, uh, but they were having Greek influence on the people. It was called Hellenization, and, and people were falling into worshiping of maybe of other gods the way that the Greeks were. They wanted to be wealthy like them. They thought they were somebodies. And so there was this tension that was taking place in the country between the, among the Jewish people because of the pull toward the Greek culture that was being influenced by so many of the soldiers that were present at the time. And at the time, it was a time of peace. So there wasn't war going on, but those soldiers were everywhere all the time, representing Caesar, representing the emperor back in Rome. One of the things that the soldiers were responsible for during these times of peace was to go into these small villages like Capernaum and then on behalf of the emperor to kind of make nice with the people, to kind of get in good with the people, is that they were actually told to go in because they had, I mean, hundreds of guys with nothing to do all day. So the emperor would give them money and say, go build them really fancy synagogues for their religion. They, the, the Greeks didn't worship 
the one true God. They had many gods, so they didn't go and worship, but they would at least build the houses of worship for the Jewish people to worship in, and they make them all really fancy and nice like they've never seen before. So that why? So not so that people would have opportunity to worship, but it was so that they would really look to the emperor, to Caesar, and go, wow, what a guy. He must really love us, must really care about us. Another role of the soldiers in a town was that if the tax collectors weren't able to get the money out of the people, then they would go and they would tell the centurion who would go and authorize some of his soldiers to go into the homes to shake people down for their taxes. You can imagine these soldiers weren't well-liked by the people. Mostly, one, because of just their influence that they were having in their communities, but for the most part is because they weren't Jewish. They were Gentiles. They weren't seen by the Jewish people really as people. They actually had names for them. Jews called Gentiles pigs. They called them dogs. They were afraid uh, to be even in their presence so that because they didn't want to become unclean in the eyes of God, that's how they viewed it. Talk about uh, racism. Talk about prejudice. They got to the point where, where they wouldn't even let the shadow of a Gentile cross over them or even their shadow or they would consider themselves to be unclean. You avoided the pagans at all cost. They weren't liked. So you can imagine also what this soldier maybe, how he viewed himself in the eyes of the people that, that he was around. I think, I think this is another reason why, or one of the reasons why Matthew loves to include this story and it comes right after the telling of the story of the leper because for Jesus to touch a leper would have made him unclean. And, and, and again, Matthew is just, and now Jesus is going to hang out with a centurion, a Gentile, a pagan. Just more unclean almost than somebody with a skin disease. It says a lot about who Jesus is. The same narrative is told in the book of Luke. Luke tells it from just a different perspective, but, but he said that, that the Jews even said about this centurion, this is a guy who, who actually likes us. He actually built our synagogue. He's responsible. He and his men built our synagogue. So Jesus, you should go, you should do this for him. Because even though we maybe don't, don't like him, he's at least showing that he's doing stuff for us. So it's interesting that you have a guy who doesn't ascribe to the religion of the day. He doesn't have a faith uh, in the one true God of Israel. And yet when he sees Jesus, he comes up to him and his, his first reaction is to call him Lord. To call him Master. This is a centurion. This is a man of great authority. He's a, a leader in the military and he comes before Jesus and he's humble. Lord, Master, my servant is sick. I've got a problem. It, it, I, I was thinking about this, and I think, what an incredible thing that here we have a guy who is on the outskirts, right? He's on the outs. He's not accepted by the people, treated horribly by the Jewish people. Yet at the same time, for somebody not treated very well by Jesus' people, there's something about Jesus that stands out to him. 
And I say that because I know that we live in a culture and in a world today where we are watching uh, young people leaving the church, churches, the evangelical church in America and around the world in droves. And a lot of it comes back to the excuse or the blame is put on Christians. I don't like how they treat me. I don't, I don't like how what they say about me. I don't like how they aren't showing this love of Jesus that I read about uh, to me. And, and I just want to say to you, uh, that there, we take a great example from this Roman soldier. It's you, your salvation, your life, your rescue, all the mercy that you receive in your life, all the grace that you need, your healing over whatever it is that's troubling your soul doesn't come through Christians. We're flawed people. We're imperfect. The reason that we're Christians is because at one point in time we saw Jesus and said, I cannot do this life without you. And we begged Him to come into our life and to rescue us. And that's what He's calling from you. Look past, look at the things of this world and all the trouble that you see. And yeah, maybe the way that people have treated you and say, I need something greater. I need somebody better in my life that I can trust. Lord, I need help. Master, Jesus, I know that you're the only answer for me. So the centurion comes to Jesus and, and, and he just lets him know. He says, Jesus, I have a servant at home who's dying. He's really sick. He uses the word paralyzed, but he's suffering. There's pain there. There's struggle. Luke says that he's really on his deathbed. He's at the point of death. And Jesus' response is, I'm coming over. I'm coming to your house. Which he never should have said or done. Because again, it's a Gentile. Jesus has a lot riding on this. He just got done preaching an incredible message and everybody's like, who is this guy? How does he preach in such an incredible way? How is it that he drives out demons? How is it that he's healing people? There's got to be something special about him. Well, you know what? I heard he went to the house of a sinner. I don't believe in him at all now, right? Uh, He's not who he says he is because he hangs out with the wrong people. And, and Jesus had everything riding on as well. Well, I probably shouldn't go to the centurion's house because what will people think of me and my faith, my walk with God, if they see me hanging out uh, with the wrong person? How often do we feel that? Wait, do we think that? And Jesus doesn't even bat an eye. He doesn't have to think through the process of, well, what are people going to think of me? Or, well, should I do this or not? He knows better. I'm, I came for all people. And, and so the guy just comes to Jesus. I, he doesn't even say what he should do. He said, Jesus, I just want you to know that I have a servant who's really sick at home. And Jesus said, well, let's go. Let me come to your house. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 says, Jesus says, come to me. And I will, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Hebrews 4.16 says that that it's Jesus, that we can approach the throne of grace that we need so desperately with confidence that we are going to receive mercy and help for all of our needs. We just have to cry out, Lord, and mean it. It's not just a title, but it is what it is. It's you are my master. And I know that you have authority over all things 
And I want to submit and surrender to you. And, and, and the, the amazing faith of this centurion was totally unexpected. One would think that being in charge of this occupying uh, force and having the power and authority to go wherever he wanted to go, that he would just walk, he would see Jesus healing people, and he would just pull out his sword, fight through the crowd, and point the tip of that sword at Jesus and go, I got a sick friend at home, and you need to fix him. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't use his power and authority at all. He, what does he say? He says, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, you, I don't, I don't, you can't come to my house. I'm not worthy, he says, to have you come into my home. I know who you are. And I know there's the respect that this, that this Roman soldier has. I know that you can't come to my house because of what it might do to you. I respect you too much to ask you to enter into my home that, that your people believe is going to defile you. We don't know all of the reasons, but he just humbles himself. I'm not worthy to have you to come to my house. And, and really, Jesus, it's that that Jesus says, your servant's healed. 1 Peter 5.16 says what? It says, humble yourself in the presence of God. And what? And he'll lift you up. It just means throw yourself. Recognize Him as God, as Lord. I'm not the Lord. I'm not God. I can't fix this. Nothing is going to change. I can't fix my situation. Jesus, you're the only, I know that you're the only one that can do it. And I don't even need you to come to my house. I don't need you to hang out with me. I don't need you to sit down and have a meal. What does He say? I just need you to say the word. And I know that my servant will be healed. That's faith. I just need you to speak it. I just need you to hear it. Luke, in the telling of this narrative, uh, actually says that the centurion sent some friends of his that were Jewish leaders to come and to approach Jesus about this. Again, just emphasizing that he's, I'm not worthy to be in your presence. I, I don't, and I don't want to do anything that's going to jeopardize you, Jesus. So would you just, would you just speak the word heal? And I know that, that it can happen. Because, and, then, and then here's what he says. He, because I, I'm, he says, I get it. I'm a guy who's under authority. I, I'm sent here by the emperor. So I'm here under his authority. So everything I do, I have permission to do whatever I want to do because I've got the emperor's seal of approval on my role and on my life. So when I say to my soldiers, go do this, they go. Because they know who my authority is. When I say to my servant that he needs to do this, he knows that, that if he disobeys me, he's disobeying the, the highest power and his life is at stake. So he does whatever I tell him to do. And, and so he says, so would you, just, would you just command the illness to go away? Because what he's really saying is, I know that you have a higher power. I know that you serve a higher power. I know that you are here under the authority of the God of heaven that, that all of the Jewish people are talking about, and I recognize that. So would you just speak it? Really what he's saying is, I believe in, I believe in who you are. I believe in your identity, and I believe in your God. And it says that when Jesus heard this, it says he marveled. In other words, he was in awe. He was awestruck. Blown away. Wowed by, by this man's uh, faith. And he says, never before in all of this nation, 
He turns to the crowd, right? In this entire nation, have I ever seen anybody with such incredible faith? Which was probably just another reason why the Jewish people began to hate Jesus so much, right? He's not one of us. He's a Gentile. He's a pagan. He's filth. And in their belief, that way that they believe, God is not for him. When the Messiah comes, he's, he's not going to offer salvation to the Gentiles. It's to, the, to us. It's just to us, to God's people. And Jesus says, I've never seen such a man of faith in all of the nation of Israel. He's wowed by it. What does it take? What would it take? Can you imagine to wow, to put awe into the heart and the mind of the creator of the universe? And he says, this man's faith, the one who shouldn't, shouldn't believe, does. That, that he would say that if I would just speak, that his friend would be healed. I think it shows a lot of the humanity of Jesus as well. So Jesus says, because of your faith, go. His response is really amazing. He's preaching to the, to the crowd now. To, to all of these Jewish leaders, and he says, look, he said there will be one day at the end of all time, uh, people will come from all over the east and the west, and they will, they will ascend into the kingdom of heaven, and they will sit at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, because that that's the belief, that's biblical, that, but the Jews believe it was just going to be them. Right? That, that when we pass from this earth, that we will be at the banqueting table with all of the great prophets of old. But it will just be us. And Jesus changes their belief system right then and there. He said, look, there's going to come a day when people from all over the East and the West are going to, have, going to be sitting at that banqueting table. And he says, but there will be people from right here in this kingdom who won't be there, who, who will be out in, in the fire, in the weeping and gnashing of teeth. They won't be sitting at the table because they, they reject who I am. That's really what it came down. They won't recognize me as Lord and let me be their king. But this man will be there. So he says, so, so go home for your servant has been healed. It's interesting that, that if you look back at the end of 7 when Jesus finished preaching the Sermon on the Mount, he said, uh, everybody was wild. They said, wow, this guy teaches like somebody who has authority, that Hebrew word is smika. It means that you speak with the power of God and the way in which you preach and the way in which you teach. And they said, this guy preaches like he has smika. It's like he has the authority of God. That's how powerful it is. But this soldier says, I believe that you do have the authority of God. So would you heal my servant? And Jesus says, go home. He's healed. It's all about who Jesus was. That was the foundation of this man's faith. Wasn't just that I believe you can do this. That wasn't, he'd seen him do it. It wasn't for him about I believe you can do this. It was I believe you can do this because of who you are. I trust in you. And it was through that that Jesus says, it's done. John 12, 44 says, whoever believes in me believes in the one who sent me. If you believe in Jesus, you believe in God. And God at work in this world, who sent Christ into this world to rescue us and to redeem us. Here's the incredible thing about awe. When you're awestruck, 
You know this. Whatever it is. You, you're out some night and you see the northern lights and you're just like, this is incredible. You drive up and all of a sudden you see the Grand Canyon. You know, and wow. The thing about being awestruck is that it all of a sudden makes you really, really small in comparison to whatever it is uh, that you are seeing in that moment. It changes your world perspective because you finally realize that there because we go through our lives and we believe that we're bigger than we really are right the world should revolve around me and the longer we go without be living in wonder or or being in awe of something we just get more and more in awe of ourselves and we spend our days trying to get people to be in awe of us but when all of a sudden we're in the presence of something great we all of a sudden become really really small and it's humbling the result is accommodation. What that means is that we change our life then based on realizing that, that we're not so big, that we are small, and we reevaluate our belief system and our ideas, our actions, all in light of this new experience that we uh, have had. And our life shifts as a result of it. Awe diminishes and destroys ego. We all need that. So how do we live in more awe? It's by recognizing and realizing how great God is, who Jesus is, and it humbles us, puts us in our place. The scene changes. We just kind of wrap this up. Won't spend a lot of time on it. But Jesus then goes into, I love, because he just says, you know, just go home. Your, your servant is healed. And you would think the next story would be, so the entire city ran to the centurion's home to see what happened. But, but it's just left there. The servant was healed. Jesus moves on. He goes to Peter's house. Uh, and as he walks in, Peter's mother-in-law is there and she's sick and in bed. And Jesus just walks up to her. And it's one of the only times in the he- all of the healings of Jesus that he wasn't asked to heal. He just showed up at the house and saw her sick. And Jesus took the initiative to put his hand out and to heal her. And incredible, he didn't just heal her. I mean, it wasn't like, oh wow, I'm, I think I'm feeling better. She got up and started to serve him. He healed her. But he took the initiative. He moved first. And, and then all of a sudden, everybody in town began to bring the demon-possessed and all of the sick, and Jesus healed all of them. But it started with Jesus taking the initiative. He moved first. And then the text wraps up with uh, Matthew saying, this is why we read in Isaiah 53, that he bore our illnesses and he took our pain. And if you look at the context of Isaiah 53, uh, we, we find this over and over again. If you read through that chapter, it is, is that he didn't just bore our illnesses and our sicknesses, he bore our sin and he bore our death. And by his stripes that he took upon himself that we are healed. Philippians tells us that although Jesus is God, that He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but He took the initiative to rescue us as humanity from from our greatest illness, from our greatest sickness, which is selfishness and sin that separates us from God.